Welcome to the Popular Pig Podcast, a convenient place where you can stay up to date on what's popular in the swine industry. By listening to Popular Pig, you will receive invaluable information on the latest trends, news, and research from various experts who guide the global pork industry. Popular Pig is brought to you by SwineTech, the award-winning creators of SmartGuard and PigFlow. To learn how PigFlow can help you streamline your workforce and reduce piglet and sow deaths, visit swinetechnologies.com. Popular Pig is also made possible by Johnsonville Foods, Swine Robotics, SwineWeb.com, and Innovative Heating, the manufacturers of Hoghearth. Welcome to the Popular Pig Podcast. My name is Matthew Rota, your host for today's episode. Today, we're going to talk about colostrum intake management. And joining us is Dr. Kara Stewart. How are you doing today, Kara? Very well. Thank you, Matthew. Thanks for having Thank- me. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for joining us on the Popular Pig Podcast. Uh, I, my background is heavily involved in the farrowing house, so I'm very, very excited to talk about colostrum management with you. Uh, when I guess before we get started, would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself and how you got involved with the swine industry? Sure. So I grew up in Carmel, Indiana, which is just outside of Indianapolis. So I have absolutely no agriculture background at all. I was raised by a single mom who was a school teacher. Um, so I came to Purdue because I wanted to be a small animal veterinarian. And uh, did my master or bachelor's in animal science and applied to vet school and didn't get in my first time. So everybody told me that if you got a master's degree, you could definitely get into vet school after you got your master's. So I had taken a course here um, that worked with breeding all kinds of animals, but I really, um, really fell in love with reproduction. So um, Dr. Wayne Singleton was my teacher, and he got me in contact with Dr. Billy Flowers down at NC State to work on my master's, and it just so happened to be in pigs because that's what Dr. Singleton knew about. Um, so I had no real, you know, love for pigs at the time, but uh, I ended up going to NC State and and kind of never looking back at vet school much. So I fell in love with pigs and reproduction and um you know, all the things that Dr. Flowers had to teach me. So when the job opened up here at Purdue, I, I actually worked after um, graduate school for a couple years in human medical device research. Um, and then when the job opened up here at Purdue in, in swine extension, I was excited to be able to apply. And so here I am. So with working with Dr. Flowers, is there anything you remember as being something that stands out? What was that like working with him? He's, he's a very well-respected veterinarian in in that state and I think in the country but what was that like um so he's he has a photographic memory and so I didn't realize that for a couple of years but I remember one day we were sitting at the pig farm and he gave me this whole stack of um sow ids with all their information as we were kind of starting to allot animals into treatments and and start to work on on a project and he said he tried to challenge me to go start the allotment and figure out different sows. And then all of a sudden he looked at me and he said, okay, on page seven is like S1579 and on page 19 is S1. Blah, 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 blah. And he just rattled off all these numbers, like exclude those five. <laughs> and I was, you know, that was the moment I was like, he really is just um, very, very intelligent, but he's also just an amazing person and he's, fatherly and he's a great mentor and uh, he's always willing to teach people all the time you know whether you're at the farm or driving somewhere or in the classroom or just 
shooting the breeze in his office. He's just a wonderful person to learn from. So now at Purdue, uh, you're you're teaching, you're helping people, you're learning. What what is your teaching style? Uh, do you have a particular style? And so I I always try to remember now that I'm a mother too that. Um, not everybody learns the same way. And so I personally learn a lot more by doing and seeing than I do by reading. Um, so I really, but I realize there's a lot of students who don't learn as the same way. So I really try to, most of my classes are very hands-on that I teach because that's how I like to teach and be engaged. And I feel like I do better when I get to let students do things and show me um, but I also remember that I need to also provide some reading material and things to make sure that I can keep everybody with me if they don't learn the same way I do. But in animal science, I, I really firmly believe that you can't be a good animal scientist if you don't get to touch animals. So I try to do as much hands-on learning as possible. That makes a lot of sense. So I guess to before we hop into a topic here about cluster management, um, what is something that you, neither your students or your colleagues know about you what's something what's something unique what's something that uh, you do for fun or uh some story that just nobody knew well i don't know if i have any good ones but i can tell you that i am now a dance mom a soccer mom a volleyball mom <laughs> and a basketball mom and so i really have no time much for myself i uh but i didn't think I could ever fall in love with dance. I am not coordinated. I was never a dancer. I wasn't a cheerleader. I wasn't any of that. But I have to tell you that two of my daughters now are on different types of dance teams, and I am totally falling in love with my role of dance mom. And so um, most people probably hear me complain about my roles in all of these different moms, but I'm actually secretly really enjoying being a dance mom. That's awesome. So I guess to, to hop into the topic, what... Can you describe your area of focus within the Pig Livability Project? Yeah, so I was brought in to um, focus a little bit on pre-weaning survivability in piglets. And so I kind of have come at that from two different roles or perspectives. One is looking at the effects of farrowing induction on piglet survival. So not only farrowing induction and how it works for the sow and the workday and timing of actual farrowing, but how does it work in terms of viability and survivability of the piglets um, from induced litters? Um, the second piece or role that I kind of play there in pre-weaning survival has to do with management to increase colostrum intake. So we're doing kind of a plethora of a couple of different types of studies looking at ways that management might be able to increase piglets colostrum. So then within colostrum intake, what's an important thing for producers and caretakers to focus on? I mean, where has, what has prior research told us before you've gone in and done the research for this project? What did you come into this project already knowing? So we really know that colostrum, in my opinion, has two really important roles. Like the first is survival. So unlike humans who maybe sometimes don't get any colostrum and do fine surviving, um, piglets don't. And that has to do with differences in, in placentation and how the placenta and the nutrients from the mom actually pass to the baby. So there's, um, it's really hard for immune cells and antibodies to pass to the fetus of the sow, to the piglet during gestation. So piglets are born really, really naive from an immune perspective and need 
colostrum, need to drink colostrum from their mother to get that those antibodies to be able to survive. Um, it has other roles in survival, like providing, you know, really highly digestible nutrients really quickly so they can regulate their body temperature and do some of that. But survival is kind of number one. Um, for me, the part that I find really fascinating is that it really sets the developmental trajectory for that piglet. So we know that if they don't get enough colostrum, they don't grow as fast as other piglets and they're lighter weight, even at market. If they don't get enough colostrum, they don't come into puberty as early as piglets who do. If they don't get enough colostrum, they don't produce as many pigs in their first couple of litters when they're an adult. And so I think there's probably, the more that we research colostrum, the more we're constantly learning about what all these bioactive factors are or what are the good parts of colostrum that are impacting that piglet. And really it does set them up for the rest of their life. So um, I find that area of research to be really exciting and we have lots more information to learn. It is pretty interesting. And so when you walked into this, this topic area, what did you focus on then? What was the thing that you guys really wanted to learn more about or, or find more concrete evidence around? Um, so to be honest with you, my initial part was just about how do we manage the pigs better to make them drink more? So I was pretty convinced from the beginning that more colostrum is better. Mm -hmm. um, but are, are the things we're doing from a management perspective actually increasing their colostrum? And how much do they really need to make sure we get them to survive and do our management practices give them that much? Um, so that so was what are, what are some of the better management practices then to, to effectively get piglets the colostrum they need? Okay, well, this is a really tough question because the more that we've all <laughs> learned, I think the less we know. So, um, so we know something like uh, adding a heat lamp versus no heat lamp can increase body temperature of the piglets, increase their colostrum intake and increase their survival. So that's kind of been a, a known thing for a while, but the tests were way back in the day. So we haven't really retested. We've tested different types of heat lamps versus heat mats versus water pads versus, you know, but we, we know that the heat lamp helps. Um, but a lot of the things that we thought we were doing to increase colostrum and survival recently haven't really been showing those effects in the data. So anecdotally, you'll talk to people on farms who say, oh, when we started drying piglets, our survival went up and or we started the split suckling thing and our survival really went up. But in controlled studies, we aren't always seeing the exact same benefit. Um, so like for a good example is recently right out of uh, University of Illinois was some data looking at drying piglets. And it was very effective at raising that piglet's body temperature within 30 minutes of birth, but it did not translate to more colostrum or increased survival unless the barn was pretty cold, like less than 25 degrees, then only the lightweight birth piglets um, saw a benefit to the drying. And that was on a ton of samples, right? That was like 10,000 letters or something like that. 10,000 piglets. So it was a piglets. robust, um, you know, really great study. But what it tells me is survival is a multifactorial um, concept. And, and for me, what I personally kind of believe lately is some of these things, when we hear the anecdotal stuff on farms that it's helpful, is we're putting people in the barn. And people are kind of like maybe the idea of a heat lamp. 
uh, people in the barn will probably save pigs. If there's more people around, they're going to hear piglets screaming. They're going to prevent some more crushing. Um, you know, maybe maybe just having people around increases piglet survival. You know, I don't know. I, I think we have a lot of um, more more work to do on on some of these management practices, like for split suckling, for example. Some studies have shown a small benefit of split suckling, and there's lots of strategies doing it based off of birth order or body weight, or even at a multiplier, just taking off the boars for a little while and, or the, you know, and letting the females suckle a little longer. Um, so there's lots, and, but how many times, when is the appropriate yeah. time to start, you know? So, and when, right? Like when in the yeah. birthing order and uh, like how effective are we at finding full bellied piglets? I was just talking to somebody who was managing a bunch of sows and they couldn't get their people to, um, I guess I would say consistently get the full bellied piglets. And he had his eight year old daughter with him one day. And she's like, Oh, that one, that one's the one you should pull. That one's the one with the full belly. And it's like, (laughs) we just got to focus on the basics sometimes. Right. It is. And it comes down to, um, education of our employees a little bit, and then finding the people who really want to, save piglets to be the people who work in the barn. So I think it's not about just putting people in the barn, but the right kind of people in the barn. Um, And I think that there are even personality tests or something that could help us identify the people who really have this vested interest. Um, Because like you just said, consistency in some of these. So I think the reason we see sometimes maybe a benefit in a controlled study, but we don't see that benefit when we translate it to the farm is that consistency. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I've been walked a sow farm before that was a split suckling farm and there were some piglets sitting, you know, in a hot box, um, off to the side. And I, you know, then it was break time and they didn't, they left the pigs there in the hot box. And so you kind of, I don't know how long they were there. <laughs> yeah. We don't, you know? we really don't know how long they're there. When are we pulling them? When are we putting them back? How big were they? There's just, is, is the is the difficulty in this understanding or finding consistency tied to the fact that we really don't understand the process of split suckling in any commercial way? It's just, it's so variant from farm to farm, person to person. I think that's it. Yep. So I think at the end of the day, sometimes we mask the, ben- the, the potential benefits that may be there by not having it done very consistently and whatever the best practice is, we don't really know. So I think that's exactly it. So what, what did you learn so far through this project and, and focusing on some of these management techniques that you've, you've mentioned, you found a lot of the ways that it's not, <laughs> have okay. you found some nuggets in there that are like, you know, this, these are the, some of the things that we've seen that can really help. Well, unfortunately I'm not changing the world yet. So um, we did a couple studies, a commercial trial and a controlled trial with farrowing induction, and we did not find any negative effects on when farrowing induction, again, was done right um, on piglet survival. Um, We looked at some of the blood parameters of piglets at birth to see like what their oxygen status was at birth to see if we were kind of depriving them of oxygen through induction. Um, And we didn't see any effects of treatment there either. So all of the treatments control sows also, piglets were sort of stressed during the farrowing process. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, but that was consistent across all of our, our treatments. So then we moved on to looking at um, supplementing piglets with just a small amount of either colostrum or 
um, an evaporated milk product to get some sugar on their tongue, which we thought would induce the suckling behavior. So that is kind of following up from work they do in dairy calves, where they get them to um, suckle, have the suckle reflex better when they give them a little bit of sugar. So we um, attempted that at birth and we are still working through the data, but we don't really see at least numerically no differences in the treatments and timing to nurse or colostrum intake in those piglets. So we weren't really able to stimulate any additional nursing behaviors there. Uh, so we're currently in the process of collecting data, looking at um, heat lamp uh, and heat supplemental heat management. Um, so just the question of things like, is the heat lamp on the same side as the sow's udder? So if the piglet is more attracted to the heat at birth before they're attracted to the udder, um, you know, is, is it just as simple as making sure that the heat lamp's on the same side as the udder so they can drink milk faster? Um, so we're doing a controlled trial now, kind of setting that up where we're placing piglets in the wrong place, you know, away from the udder versus towards the udder. And, and depending on where the heat lamp is, kind of going to see if we can drive a little management decisions that way. Now, you said I'm not changing the world, but it's my mom always told me this when we were building our piglet crushing tool thing. It was, you know, you got to find the 10,000 ways not to do something sometimes to find the perfect way to do something. So all of your research is helping us understand where shouldn't we be focusing um, potentially, which is, which is very helpful. And are, have you found that there's a lot of things historically that, or maybe we just don't talk about what, I guess when we go to the trade shows, I throw this out there, we, we see all the booths and we see all of the research projects and we focus on the, the ones that tell us something new or they, they tell us something that works. Do we not spend enough time as an industry digesting and appreciating finding the things that didn't work? I think that comes back to how much we share and how much we don't share. So even historically, it's been hard for researchers to publish negative data. Um, you know, I think now we have some journals who are open to that idea that we can publish negative data. But even historically, a lot of times we didn't, researchers didn't put that information out there. The other thing that I find is, you know, I'm, try to make as many friends in the industry as I can, because a lot of the big companies are doing all of this stuff with their animals already and gathering this data for themselves. Um, but we don't have a means to share it. And these aren't trade secrets about anybody's mm -hmm. genetics or anything. This is just general management that works or doesn't work that I think we need more of an avenue um, for big companies to share this data so we don't constantly recreate the wheel. For sure. So I guess if I'm a farm manager or or somebody walking into into a sow farm, what are the things that can tell me through observation that maybe even through records, maybe that we're doing a good job or a bad job with colostrum intake? Um, are there things that you're going to be able to see or notice that tell you, you know, we're doing a good job or a bad job? So colostrum intake is hard because it's it's that like unseen thing. And um, so I do think that the identification of full belly, like you were talking about piglets within the first 24 hours. So, so teaching our employees that colostrum is really most important in 24 hours. And the faster you can get those piglets up and drinking, um, you know, the better off they are. So I think finding, making sure that within the first few hours after birth, you have full body piglets. Um, and especially you're going to have those lighter birth weight piglets that are going to want to go to the heat lamp. They're going to be cold. They're going to want to 
go to the best warmth, but we need them to drink and drinking will warm them up. I think it's something like one degree Celsius if they drink um, colostrum within the first hour of birth even. So, um, you know, kind of just managing those piglets to make sure they get to the udder and start to drink as soon as they can. The problem is, is that, I, you know, some of these pigs don't have a strong suckling ability and some of them are small and they don't probably have very big stomachs even. Um, so we did a lot of work where we were trying to make colostrum-free piglets. So we were bottle feeding uh, babies some milk replacer. And, you know, the first couple of feedings were really challenging for us because they don't, some of them really didn't want to or couldn't consume a very high volume. And I think you run the risk with some of those supplementation studies where they tube fed colostrum and things to try to jumpstart piglets. You can overfeed when you do those kinds of things and maybe give them Thanksgiving day belly and they don't go drink any more colostrum later either. So there's kind of like the sensitive window, but being able to identify those pigs, you know, otherwise you have this whole litter that maybe looks good and it's hard to know if this one, you know, only got a hundred milliliters, which is some, but isn't really enough to be out of the woods and survival and probably definitely not enough to grow and have average daily gain as, as productive as they should be. Um, so it's hard to tell which one's got a hundred milliliters and which one's got 400 milliliters in the litter. Um, so it's real, it's, I think it's a real challenge. We've been trying to, in another project, kind of look if we can find like a, some other biomarker or other way to tell or a little blood sample or a little something that could tell us who has the most colostrum or who has enough colostrum. But without That'd taking a blood cool. sample, it's hard. So are there things then you can, so what things can you do then in the farm uh, as an employee or manager to help encourage more nursing bouts? Uh, so that those piglets can have smaller meals, but more meals overall. So you're asking a really good question. And here's, I'm going to give you both sides of the coin, in my opinion. So I think one side of that is kind of like an assisted nursing thing. So when people are walking the barns, find the piglets that are, you know, kind of gaunt and not really looking like they've been eating or that are under the heat lamp and not near the mom and, and try to hook them up to a teat and get them to take a drink and don't walk away till you see them actually nurse. You can strip some mm -hmm. colostrum out and kind of spray it around their mouth to try to stimulate them to nurse and try to, try to manage that way. In the same instance, I think sometimes the more we mess with these animals and have people handling them, maybe we're not doing ourselves favors either. That might be stressing the sow, and she might not like us handling her piglets if we're constantly coming in and picking them up. Every time we pick up the piglet, we're stimulating a cortisol response in that piglet and a stress response there that could maybe impact how long they need to calm down before they would be relaxed enough to go drink more. So I'm a little bit on the fence about how much handling we should really do. So if we are going to handle pigs, is it safe to say that if we're going to try to you know, encourage those little guys to hook up to a teat, Let's do it while we're already there performing another task that is just incredibly important, like finishing out a sow or something like that. I think that's a good idea. Yep. Once you've already kind of stimulated everybody to respond or, or get stressed just a little bit, you know, do what you need to do and then and back away and, and let them relax. And, you know, I like walking into farrowing barns where it's relatively quiet. The lights are kind of dim. The sows remain as calm as possible. And that stimulates milk production and 
piglets to be calm and, you know, go seek the nursing. So I, I think that's mm-hmm. the best environment. Gotcha. So, yeah, I think there was one thing, I'm not sure if you've done anything with it, but they were talking about um, driving uniform size throughout litters and how they actually found that by making all the pigs the same size, you're actually just creating another hierarchy where you're going to have even a bigger one and a small one in the group. And, you know, having the big and the small isn't all bad because they might just rotate naturally who's eating and who isn't. Have you focused on size of pigs at all and how that messes with anything? No, I do think, I mean, it's kind of like a strategic cross fostering thing. And there's a lot of data out there that I am probably not well-versed in all of it. Um, But again, it's the same thing, you know, like, is there a real benefit to reducing within litter variation in size versus not? And how do we, how is the best method to strategically cross foster to really save piglets? I do believe sometimes that, you know, taking light, really little piglets off and putting them in one litter together, I think can be beneficial for those piglets. Um, But yeah, lots of, lots of questions still remain. I think about how's the best way to cross foster. So what does colostrum intake, what does colostrum intake, what effects does the quality of colostrum intake, I guess we'll call it that, have on the subsequent litters that a sow is going to farrow? Does, does having all teats hooked up and good suckling quality impact those future litters as well? Yes. So mammary gland development and stimulation is really important to have all of her teats that she has functional to be used, especially in young parodies. And that sets up those mammary glands to produce more milk and, and do better later. Um, and so from a sow perspective for subsequent milk production, it's really important that we use her teats if she has them functioning. Um, and then I think, you know, also from the piglets perspective, so how much they drink, you know, impacts them forever. And, Um, I think they've even shown that the more colostrum they drink young makes them better mothers and produce more pigs, but also produce more milk in their lifetime as well. So. So it's exponential. It it all starts. And when you're having a replacement guilt, how that guilt had colostrum at the very beginning and then how you utilize her tea, it just can exponentially grow into a very profitable sow or, or one that's just going to be a problem sow. Yes, All I mean, the way again, down. I back to that developmental trajectory, it just starts everything. Jeff Villay's work um, out of the USDA had great data showing low versus high colostrum intake piglets, and they were older at puberty. They had like 1.3 pigs less over the first four parodies, and they grew less. I mean, it just kind of, it's, it is that developmental trajectory for whatever they're going to be, whether they're going to be meat or breeding, you're setting them up for one or the other, and high colostrum is better. So in, in an ideation stage here, if somebody could figure out how to prove how much colostrum a piglet has had, it would actually probably transform the way that we get replacement gilts. For sure. I mean, I, you know, yeah. one of my initial thoughts was like, let's just supplement them. Let's just give it to them. We know how we know really in a milliliter form, we kind of know what they need. They need about 200 milliliters in 24 hours to survive. They need 250 to 300 milliliters or more to thrive is what I say. So that's where they kind of can hit the good growth trajectories and all of that. And Jeff Villay's work showing age at puberty and stuff was somewhere above 250 to 300 milliliters. So, um, but 
I was actually planning a big commercial piglet supplementation project where we were just going to give them maybe two doses of 50 milliliters, you know, or three doses uh-huh. of 30 milliliters. But I was told very adamantly by many producers, we are not milking sows. <laughs> so you need to forget that idea. And milking sows is not much fun. We do a lot of it here and I can, I can attest that it isn't great. And then there's other disease challenges with trying to do things like milking sows where you have to maybe get in the crates and you don't want to do stuff like that either. So, um, so we've changed our, our research question for the time being, but but we kind of know how much they need. And if we could, you know, be able to look at a litter and like you said, identify which ones have had enough, we could pick our replacement gilts a little better. And and it's interesting too, because yeah, it'd be a lot of work to milk all the sows, but if you're, if you're multiplier farms, hired an extra two people to milk sows and to add supplement. Well, if, if it is exponentially impacting growth to maybe first HNS, and then also how many pigs she has over her first few litters, that'd be a great way for a genetics company to figure out how to gain an extra pig per sow, maybe per year even, or a half a pig per sow per year. Um, and I know maybe there's certain people where it would be beneficial. I know. I agree. And I know some multiplier farms, you know, split suckle based on sex to let the girls get a little extra. I don't know. I've never seen data to tell me like how much extra does that mean they get, you know, like if they're normally a a pig that would have only drank 150 milliliters is, is, you know, one time split suckling or two times split suckling enough to give them an extra 50 hundred, like how much, how much benefit does it give me? To do that. So I think those are like, some interesting questions we need to ask. Yeah. Like, is there a formula if the piglet weighs X amount of pounds, then it needs X amount of ounce. Yeah. It's just, that's interesting. But I know. So I really appreciate you coming on to talk about this. This is a fascinating topic. It's one that is super important. And I guess before we, we sign off here, I'd really like for you to share a golden nugget, some life lesson that you've learned from somebody uh, or experience that you think listeners would gain value from. So I think I'll use one of my favorite little teaching quotes from, from Benjamin Franklin. And he said, tell me, and I forget, teach me and I might remember and involve me and I learn. And so I've used this thought process a lot, even from my parenting, my kids to teaching in the classroom here, as well as I think when we approach the people that we employ on our, our hog farms, you know, I think we have to, if I just tell somebody, you know, it's like, like when I'm a mom, I always try to never say, because I said so. <laughs> if I can't explain my logic to my kids, then I don't have logic. So um, I think about it the same way when I go to pig farms. If if we just tell our employees, follow this SOP every day the exact same way and be perfect about it, and we don't teach them why or show them you know, the reasons why we have the SOPs the way we do, then I don't think they truly learn. I don't think they're committed to to doing it well every day. And and I think those are the things we need to focus on is getting our people to know why we ask them to do things because we need to be consistent and, you know, precise in pig farming today. But if we don't give our employees the tools to learn and understand why, then they're not going to do it. So some of that probably comes back to even understanding how are they doing? We're kind of blind as an industry towards, are we doing a good job or not? And then I go home and I have no idea if I won or lost or what impact I even had. That's right. And I think, you know, 
everybody who works in farrowing houses wants to save pigs. I mean, that's why they're there. They're usually very passionate about that. And, you know, I think if they could learn what works and what doesn't. And the other thing I think is the more they learn, the people who come up with the best ideas are the people who are in the barns every day. And I think you'll be surprised at what they come up with to try or, you know, different management techniques that they think might be better. And they usually have the best ideas. So uh, if we can make sure they understand how to ask the next question, we'll get a lot more out of it from them. Yeah, completely different area of production. But I was on a sow farm and there was an individual spraying uh, the gilts and sows and group housing with some pine salt because it helped reduce fighting or something like that. And it's like, well, I'd never seen that before. And that came from like Mexico or something like that. And yeah, they, they do. They see the problems. They find solutions. And, and uh, yeah, they're the ones dealing with it every day. They are. And they usually have the most creative ideas. So... Well, thank you for joining us on the Popular Pig Podcast. It's been a real pleasure and we wish you the very best in the future of of learning around colostrum management and uh, hope to follow up maybe in a year or two and see how everything went. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Matthew. I appreciate it. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Popular Pig. We aspire to learn and grow together through the experience and wisdom shared by our esteemed guests. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues within the swine industry. For more information, please go to popularpig.com to receive updates when new episodes are available. Popular Pig is brought to you by SwineTech, the award-winning creators of SmartGuard and PigFlow. To learn how PigFlow can help you streamline your workforce and reduce piglet and sow deaths, visit swinetechnologies.com.